Lord, we're so thankful for all of the truth that we've already heard this morning. It's unbelievable. These glorious truths that You've made known to us that we have the mind of Christ because we have the Word of Christ and we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, illuminating our minds, giving us understanding and wisdom. And our prayer this morning, Father, is that You would draw us nearer to Yourself. That we would commune with You as friends face to face, beholding the glory of God in the Scripture. That You would open our eyes to see the majesty of our Savior. We thank You that You have saved us by grace through faith in Christ alone. And indeed, we cry out, Glorious Christ! Jesus is so majestic and so glorious and so magnificent that it is our longing to see Him this morning, to love Him more, and to live our lives in a way that would bring glory to His name. So help us to do that now as we come to Your Word, we pray. Amen. Alright, well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the third chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And this morning we come to a very interesting portion of Scripture. Uh, As an expository preacher, that's what we do here, exposition. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. I simply have to take the Word of God as He laid it out for us. And so there are times when we have to deal with topics that are not as applicable, it would seem, today as it was in the first century. And this morning we have the glorious task of dealing with the topics of slaves and masters. How practical is that for your life, right? Uh, But this is a very pivotal time, I think, in our culture to talk about this issue uh, in light of our nation's past and some of the current events going on. So hopefully in God's gracious providence, I'll preach in such a way that you'll find at least some profit in this text this morning. As you know, verse 18 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 1 of chapter 4 really kind of serves as one major section, one unit of thought. The theme here is the family, the home. Paul is explaining to us, presenting to us, God's design and will for the home. And thus I've entitled this, in light of the context, the new self in the home. The new self in the home. This is now part three of this series on the new self in the home. And part one, we considered Paul's exhortation to wives and husbands. In part two, we considered Paul's exhortation to children and fathers. And that seemed somewhat applicable to us. But now this morning, in part three, starting in verse 22 of chapter three and going all the way to verse one of chapter four, we'll consider Paul's exhortation to slaves and masters. But before we even get into the text this morning, it's going to be a little different this morning. Uh, the introduction is going to be very long. Uh, it might put you to bed. Uh, this is going to be like a Bible study, kind of a survey. Because before we even get into the text, I want to kind of give you a theology of slavery. A theology of slavery. That way we kind of have the right contextual lens to both understand this passage as well as what's going on in our culture today. So a theology of slavery. That's a very controversial topic, isn't it? very controversial topic when talking about the Bible, when talking about our past as a nation, and especially controversial when it comes to defending the Christian faith against skeptics. You see, skeptics of the Christian faith often, their argument against the legitimacy and validity of the Bible is this. The God of the Bible is evil because slavery was permitted and even allowed in the Bible. The God condoned slavery and therefore the God of the Bible is evil. And there's two ways we can respond to this, two ways to answer this offensively and defensively. Offensively, we should demonstrate to the unbeliever the inconsistencies of his own worldview. 
To say the God of the Bible is evil, any time a skeptic says that, what, what should our response be? Very simple. This is the response every time. According to what standard? Says who? Says who? Apart, you see, that's a Christian presupposition, evil and good and morality. Apart from the Christian worldview, you can't even account for evil. Apart from the Christian worldview, all you have is arbitrary, subjective opinion. So when the unbeliever says that the God of the Bible is evil, therefore the Bible can't be true, the skeptic is actually presupposing God and demonstrating that he does know God exists because the law of God is written in his heart. But then we should answer this objection defensively. We should be able to make a defense against this accusation. And the question under consideration is really this. Does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible advocate for slavery? Or does it speak of it as a moral evil? Does it condemn it? Does it call for the abolition of slavery? That's really the question. And the matter-of-fact answer is simply this. The Bible does not explicitly condemn slavery. The Bible does not explicitly call for the abolition of slavery. In fact, in the Old Testament, God did permit Israel to have slaves. He permitted them to enslave those of various nations. And that would be, however, a form of divine judgment. It's not like if this was about ethnicity. This wasn't about skin color. This wasn't saying you are less than human because your skin color is different, so now you're a slave. This was divine judgment upon pagan nations. God's wrath upon a godless people. God can decide when people need judgment, right? Not us. But then you also have slavery within Israel amongst the Jews. Jews were slaves to other Jews. But that kind of slavery was more like a, a debtor paying off a debt, working to pay off a debt. It's what we could call debt slavery. Let me read a passage to you from the Old Testament that will kind of bring some clarity on this. Turn with me for just a moment to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. That is the third book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And it is the book that Bible reading plans come to die, right? Genesis usually pretty good. Exodus not too bad, and most people get to Leviticus, fall asleep, and yeah, that's the end of the reading plan. But it's an important book, and it's really important for us today because this section we're going to read kind of helps us understand slavery in ancient Israel. So Leviticus chapter twenty-five, starting in verse thirty-nine. Verse thirty-nine. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, notice that this is voluntary slavery. He sells himself to you because he's poor. You shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale, you shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. So that's the kind of slavery that took place among the Jews. It was a man voluntarily selling himself to another Jew because he couldn't pay off a debt, and that would be the means by which he paid off his debt. We, we've all joked with our children when we get the bill from the waitress and say, I can't pay it, you guys got to go wash dishes, right? That's kind of what was happening here. A man couldn't pay his debt, so he worked for a master until it was paid. And so that was the form of slavery, if you could even call it slavery. But then in Exodus 21.2, it's put this way. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. 
So you have a guy who can't pay a debt, sells himself, becomes a slave to a fellow Jew, and he can't be treated severely. He's got to be treated with mercy as a fellow human being, a fellow image bearer of God, and he can only serve for six years. And on the seventh year, whether or not his debt is paid, he's released. Or the year of Jubilee, whichever one came first. So that would be the kind of slavery in ancient Israel. But then he goes on in verse 44, and he adds this. Leviticus 25, verse 44. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition. And out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land. They also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves, but in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now this slavery here would include people from these pagan nations that were to be destroyed by the Israelites. So this, as John MacArthur has rightly noted, was a more humane option. This was a more gracious option. Instead of being wiped out and killed, they became slaves. At least they were alive. So that's the kind of slavery that took place here. This is judgment. This is God's wrath upon wicked people. This is the way God is judging these nations. And it also needs to be noted that had God commanded Israel not to participate in this slave market that was so common in the ancient Near East, these people would have been sold as slaves anyway. They would have been sold to other nations where they would have been treated very harshly and very severely. So being enslaved in Israel would have been a much better option. Because listen to what God commands of Israel even when dealing with foreigners. Leviticus 19, 33-34, Moses writes this, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. That's radical, isn't it? Even a foreigner, even a foreign slave, love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You were slaves. You know what it's like. Now you're to love foreigners, even your slaves, as you love yourself. That'd be much better being in Israel as a slave than it would being somewhere else where they didn't have the law of God regulating this institution. So Hebrew masters were even to love their pagan slaves as themselves. That would transform slavery, wouldn't it? That would transform slavery if the master really loved his neighbor as himself as a fellow image bearer of God. That's nothing like the slavery in the ancient Near East. And you also need to know that it's nothing like the slavery that we've experienced in our country's past either. In our country's past, slavery was about skin color and ethnicity. That's not what's happening here. In Israel, again, it's either a hired man, a man working off a debt, or it's judgment upon evil nations and a more merciful expression of judgment. But it's not about people being less than human because their skin color is different, and so we're going to force them to be slaves. That's not the slavery commended in the Bible. That is an evil form of slavery, not the slavery that took place in ancient Israel. But then you have the form of slavery that was present during the first century uh, in the Roman Empire. The slavery that would have been taking place in Paul's day as he wrote this letter. And that slavery was very unique. In fact, a lot of scholars have estimated that nearly one-third of those who lived in the empire were slaves. This was not a slavery based upon ethnicity or skin color either. This was a social economic slavery. Slaves did the hard jobs. They did a lot of the work. They would Anywhere from training up children uh, to working out in the fields. They did the hard labor, the manual labor. 
And often they lived with their masters, they were taken care of by their masters, they learned the trade of their masters, and they were usually not treated too harshly because if you treat your slave harshly and beat him and kill him, that hurts you because now you've taken a financial hit because he does your work. And so ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily, slaves are treated a little better uh, than what might, you might think. But now in light of that question, here, here's a question. In light of that, here's a question. Why doesn't the New Testament call for the abolishment of slavery? Why? Why didn't Paul just write to slaves and tell them to run away from their masters and seek their freedom? Why didn't he do that? Well, there may be several reasons. The first reason is that many slaves in the first century, for them, slavery would have been better off than freedom. Because for many of them, had they run from their slaves and got their freedom, or even had they been liberated by their masters, these slaves might have starved to death. It would have been hard for them to find work. It would have been hard for them to find a house, find clothing, and they might have starved to death. So for many in the first century, slavery was actually better than freedom. In fact, many in the Roman Empire were voluntarily slaves for this very reason. Because if they were slaves, their master would give them lodging and clothing and food. And so for Paul to call for the abolition of slavery here, if that would have happened, a lot of people might have starved to death. That might not have been the most humane thing to do. Douglas Moo provides us with some insight on this. He says in his commentary, and I quote, Legal freedom was by no means always a positive move for a slave. The treatment slaves received from their owners naturally varied greatly. But all owners had reason to treat their slaves tolerably well since they were an important economic investment for them. Once set free, however, former slaves were on their own and often found it very difficult to make a living. Legal freedom would not then have been the obvious good in the first century that we would consider it to be today. So there's some context. There's a reason that perhaps Paul and the New Testament writers don't call for the abolition of slavery within that culture. But why doesn't Paul just tell masters or slaves to run away? Just sneakily get out and get your own freedom. Probably because had they done that, what do you think would have happened to a slave in the first century had he run away? He would have died. He might have been beaten. So Paul knew that this wasn't, this wasn't in the best interest of the slave. Now obviously if the master is overly harsh and has literally got him to the point of death, he should leave. But ordinarily that wasn't the case. And so if a slave was to run away from his master, it would probably bring him into danger. It would endanger his life. Richard Mellick says this about this issue. It simply would not do for Paul to advocate slaves walking away from their masters. That would endanger many innocent lives and frustrate the spread of the gospel. So ordinarily, that was not the best option for the slave to gain or, st- or run away and seek his freedom. But another reason perhaps that the Bible doesn't call for the abolition of slavery is that this little New Testament church in an authoritarian, dominant Roman Empire, had no political power at all to abolish slavery. There was no, nothing they could really do. They didn't have the Constitution and rights like we do in America today. If they were to see slavery abolished, they were going to have to take a different route. The solution would have to be the Gospel. Preaching the Gospel, that would be what would stop slavery in the first century. So, what do we do then? We have slavery in the Bible. It's, it's there. It's not explicitly condemned. So what do we do? We have a biblical theology of slavery. That's what we do. We understand that in Israel, they were workmen paying off a debt, or they were pagan nations under judgment, and God still commanded Israel to treat them like brothers and show them kindness and love. And in the Roman Empire, there were economical 
reasons, and there were uh, health reasons, there were just good reasons to not run away and seek slavery. But the real question then is, how come there's no exhortation in a passage like this one? No exhortation for masters to release their slaves. So maybe it's, not, maybe it's not possible for them to abolish slavery among the unbelievers, but why not tell Christian masters to free their slaves? You know, Paul wrote one of his shortest letters to a slave owner in the Bible, the book of Philemon. Philemon was a Christian slave owner. His slave, Onesimus, had run away, had been converted in Rome through the Gospel, and was being sent back with the letter of Colossians to Colossae. Philemon was actually in Colossae. And maybe that's why Paul addresses this issue here in Colossians. But why doesn't Paul tell Philemon to just release Onesimus? He never does that. He never says that. Maybe two reasons. First of all, because again, it might not have been in Onesimus' best interest. Right? Perhaps if Onesimus was released, he would have had nowhere to go and financially would have been in turmoil. But there might be a second reason. The second reason is that the Gospel transforms our relationships, doesn't it? The Gospel radically changes our relationship. Slavery would be change. Let me read some of Paul's words to Philemon to you. This is from the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus was saved through Paul's prison ministry. Who formerly was useless to you, but now was useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart. So notice that. Paul doesn't say to Philemon, you're a Christian, you just need to stop slavery. Onesimus doesn't need to come back. Paul sends him back. Verse 13, Whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Watch this. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That's radical. The Gospel would transform slavery. Onesimus' situation would be much more ideal with him as a Christian and his master as a Christian. Because Paul, or sorry, Philemon, wasn't to see Onesimus as just a piece of property to be dealt with, but a brother to be loved. A brother in Christ. John MacArthur writes, Christianity sowed the seeds of the destruction of slavery. It would be destroyed not by social upheaval, but by changed hearts. That's the solution. The Gospel's always the solution. Any great sin, any great atrocity, any wicked institution, if you want to see it abolished, preach the Gospel. Preach the Gospel. You know the only thing that's going to abolish abortion? The Gospel. Changed hearts. People being converted. Because the problem is not ultimately the symptoms, it's the heart. And the Gospel is the only means by which the heart can be changed. So the only thing that would abolish abortion, the only thing that will abolish slavery, the only thing that will abolish racism, is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel clearly transformed the relationships between slaves and masters in the first century. So in light of all of that, with that background... What does any of that have to do with us today? What does any of that have to do with the current events in our lives? Well, you all watch, you, know, you all scroll Facebook, you get on the internet, you watch TV. We know what's going on in our culture right now, the craziness with the Black Lives Matter movement. 
that supposedly is a response to the racism of the past as well as to the supposed racism of today. What is our response to that? How do we view the Black Lives Matter movement? It's a Christian response. Let me kind of enumerate some responses to you. First of all, we need to affirm that yes, black lives do matter, right? Black lives do matter. As do white lives and Asian lives and babies' lives and all lives. All lives matter equally. However, that is a Christian presupposition. That is only consistent within the Christian worldview. All lives matter equally because all lives are made in the image of God, have inherent dignity and value, and therefore ought to be treated with love and respect. That is a Christian presupposition. So black lives do matter. However, the Black Lives Matter organization is anti-Christian and ought to be rejected for several reasons. Several reasons. Let me give you a few. First of all, because the movement is inherently racist. The movement is inherently racist. Now what I mean by that is not that everyone who hashtags Black Lives Matter on the internet is racist. But the ideologies undergirding that philosophy, that movement, are inherently racist. The idea is that black lives matter more than white lives and more than other lives. And they'll tell you that's not the case. But it is. That's why they get offended when we say white lives matter or all lives matter. Right? What's wrong with a statement that says all lives matter? There's nothing wrong with that statement unless you have an agenda. But it is an inherently racist movement. A second reason to reject this movement is because it is pro-LGBTQ, gender fluidity, homosexuality, and feminism. If you don't believe me, just get on their website and read it for yourself. They reject the authority of the Word of God. The movement is destructive to the family and the home because it's contrary to the will of God and the design of God for the home. If you want a godly home, you want a fulfilled home, do not follow the ideologies promoted by the Black Lives Matter movement. Follow the simple formula laid out in the Word of God that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But a final reason to reject this movement, and there may be many more, but just off the top of my head, a final reason, is because it promotes cultural Marxism, intersectionality, and critical race theory. The idea is that we break everyone down to these categories, and here's the oppressed, and here are the oppressors. And regardless of what's really happening in reality, because you're in this group, that's who you are. You're either oppressed or you're oppressor. If you're black, you're oppressed. If you're white, you're the oppressor, and you have white privilege, and you need to repent. You need to repent of your whiteness. That is a godless, irrational, unbiblical way of thinking. In fact, to say that someone is racist because they're white is itself a racist statement. It is a racist statement. I was watching a video the other day on intersectionality, and a very good video. I'll summarize the gist of it for you here today. Basically, he said that intersectionality and all of these ideas coming from the Black Lives Matter movement or should be rejected for three reasons. Number one, it has an erroneous view of identity. Number two, it has an erroneous view of sin. And number three, it has an erroneous view of salvation. So an erroneous view of identity. According to these theories, your identity is bound up in whether or not you're oppressed or oppressor, based upon the social class in which you fall. But according to the Bible, our identity is to be found in the fact that we're all made in the image of God, and therefore have inherent dignity. And even more so, it's to be found in the fact that we're either in Christ or in Adam. We're either saved or unsaved, believer or unbeliever, converted or unconverted. That is a biblical view of identity. 
The second reason to reject it is because it has an erroneous view of sin. Sin, primarily in this theory, is oppression. And even those who are being oppressed are excused in some of their sins because they're just victims of society. They're off the hook. But the Bible says that sin is universal. It's pervasive. All of us have sinned. All of us have broken the law of God. That's what sin is. All of us are born with corrupt hearts. And therefore, all of us are under the wrath of God naturally. But then finally, this theory has an erroneous view of salvation. Salvation, according to this idea, is that we need to liberate the oppressed. And we're not against that, by the way. But biblically, salvation is forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, deliverance from the wrath of God through the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's received by faith and faith alone in Him. That is a biblical view of salvation. And so, because uh, it has a wrong view of who we are, it has a wrong view of what the problem is, and it has a wrong view of what the solution is, this movement must be rejected as an unbiblical, godless movement. So we affirm that black lives matter. All lives matter. We affirm that the slavery that took place in our country's past was evil. And in God's providence, praise the Lord, it's been abolished. Because enslaving people based on their skin color, treating them less than human, is likewise anti-Christian. And we acknowledge that. However, in God's providence, that slavery doesn't exist anymore. And though, of course, racism does exist, what we might call racism, though it's more properly called tribalism, because there's only one race, the human race. But what we commonly call racism does exist. There are people who hate people because of their skin color. But even if everyone had the same skin color, these same people would find another reason to hate people, because the problem is not skin color, the problem is a sinful heart. A sinful heart. So sure, racism exists today. Not the way it is portrayed in the media, however. The media takes a story, spins it a certain way, and gets a certain reaction from the people. We need to follow the Word of God. We need to be realistic about what we see in the world, not just buying into every lie from the media. So racism does exist. And the slavery of our nation's past is nothing like the slavery that Paul's talking about here in Colossians. It's not the same thing. Okay? So with all of that said, you can now turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 if you're not already there. I told you this would be a long introduction this morning. We're about one-fourth of the way through. Now. Colossians chapter 3. And having given you a biblical theology of slavery and a Christian response to the Black Lives Matter movement, now I want to take our remaining time this morning and walk through these verses together. So let's read this passage. Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, 
knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So I told you that in this passage, Paul is showing us what the new self looks like in the home. How our salvation affects our relationships within the home. And he does that by addressing the three primary categories of relationships that you would find in a first century home. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. And he addresses them by issuing six exhortations to these six different groups. We've already seen the first four, his exhortation to wives and husbands and children and fathers. And now this morning we'll finish our examination of this passage by considering his exhortation to both slaves and masters. And this may seem very foreign to us. I mean, slaves and masters, that's not a relationship in our home today. It's just so foreign. What do we do with this? I think, however, that some of these principles, legitimately, some of these principles can be carried over into the workplace. This is not a passage about the workplace. This is a passage about slaves and masters in the home. But there are principles here that transcend that situation and can be applied even to our lives today. And I'll make that known as we work through the text. So let's begin this morning by considering Paul's exhortation to slaves. And we see that in verses 22 to 25. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. God's will for slaves was that they obey their masters in everything, in all things. That word obey, again, hupakuo, the word we looked at last week in regards to children. It's two words, hupa and akuo. The word akuo is where we get the English word acoustics. It means to hear. So it means to hear under. To be under authority, listen to the one under that you have has authority over you, and to be obedient to that authority. And the extent of this obedience, yet again, is all things. Slaves are to obey their masters in all things. Is there any exception to this? Any exception when it comes to obeying authority? We know, right? That's why we're again, that's why we're here this morning. We are people that get that. When it comes to authority, when it tells us to do that which is contrary to the word of God or the gospel of Christ, we obey God rather than men. Very simple. You just don't tell us to do what's contrary to the word of God, and we'll do what you ask. The moment you contradict the word of God, we obey God instead of men. And that's the case here. We must obey God rather than men. But in apart from that exception, slaves were to obey their masters in all things. I hope you're seeing a, a kind of a common reoccurring motif in each of these situations, a common theme. The theme is submission and authority, right? You have the wife under the authority of the husband. She's to lovingly submit to the husband. You have the children under the authority of the parents. They're to willingly and voluntarily obey their parents. And then you have slaves under the authority of masters. They are to obey their masters. And again, it might be foreign to us, but as I said, this kind of carries over to the workplace as well. The word here for slave, doulos, is the word. It, refers to one who has no ownership rights of his own. One who's completely owned by a master. Now obviously as an employee, you're, you're not owned by a master. You have, a, you have rights that a slave didn't have. However, when you're at the workplace, your boss is your earthly master, your earthly boss, and you are expected to obey him in all things that are not contrary to the Word of God. Of course, you could leave, you could quit your job, you have that right, but as long as you stay at your job, you should obey your employer. You should do what He asks you to do. And notice that he, he refers to their masters as your masters on earth. 
That implies we have another master, doesn't it? One who's where? In heaven. We have a master in heaven. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. You too have a master in heaven. So he goes on in verse 22 and says, This obedience is to be carried out not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do this because God always watches. Your heavenly master always sees what you're doing. And so regardless if your boss or employer or master is there, you should do that which pleases the Lord. Because that's His will as revealed in His Word. In Ephesians 6, Paul really says the exact same thing to the church at Ephesus. Let me read a few verses starting in verse 5 of Ephesians 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the will of God. That slaves obey their masters, and that employees obey those who have authority over them in the workplace. They do that, which they're commanded to do. Not just when they're watching. Not just when they're there in front of you. Even when they're away. Even when no one's there. Because God always sees, and He's the one we're seeking to please. In verse 23, he adds this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever you do. Now this is a real general principle. This even can carry over to people who don't have bosses. Even if you're working in the home as a mother. Whatever you do, whatever labor, whatever work, whatever job, whatever duty that God has providentially laid upon you, do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You should work hard to homeschool the children. Work hard to keep house. Work hard at your secular job. Why? To glorify Christ. To please Him. The Lord's always watching. So what kind of employee are you? When your boss walks off, do you cut corners? Kind of get lazy, goof off a little bit? That dishonors Christ. Dishonors the Lord. We should always be laboring with all our heart, all our might, with sincerity of heart. Please the Lord. This puts an end to what we would call the secular sacred divide. You know, we have a tendency to divide life up like this. You know, this is this is for God, this is spiritual. This isn't. This is kind of non-spiritual. So, you know, I go to church on Sunday to please God. I go to work on Monday to make money for myself. That is a wrong view of life. It's a wrong view. Everything, remember back to verse 17, whatever you do, do all what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even your work on Monday is to be done primarily for the glory of God. Everything we do is to be done for Him. So those of you who do have jobs, how, how do you act there? Because not only is God always in His omniscience seeing what you do, but even the unbelieving employees there see what you do. That's why this is so important, because your work ethic is either going to commend the Gospel or bring unnecessary reproach upon the Gospel. It's either going to commend it or bring reproach upon it. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? Why? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken again. Right? Do this so that God is glorified. The Gospel's commended. I mean, imagine you're working for your boss and, and you're lazy, cutting corners, goofing off, not doing what you're supposed to do. What's your unconverted boss liable to think? Man, these Christians are lazy. Look at these 
These atheists over here working hard. These Christians are lazy. Is this what is this the logical conclusion to their faith? What reproach that brings upon the name of Jesus? Christian employees ought to be the best workers. They ought to be the hardest workers because we're working for the best master, our Lord in heaven. We want to bring honor to him. In Titus chapter 2, Paul told Titus the exact same thing. He said, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Do you live all of your life, including at work, at the job, do you live all of your life in such a way that the Gospel is commended? It's beautified. It's adorned. The power of the Gospel is put on display in your life because you have been transformed by it to be a hard worker, a godly person in your workplace. We should do everything that we do for the sake of the Gospel. So when the alarm goes off in the morning and you're ready to go to work, it's not a good time to talk about the alarm going off, is it, Keith? I was a little lazy this week. But when the alarm goes off, I'm preaching to myself, guys. We're all in this together, right? So when the alarm goes off at 5 o'clock in the morning, in the, you know, you think, why do I get up? Why does it matter? Why, why not just be an hour late to work? Because you want to glorify Christ. Glorify Jesus. Even in the mundane. That's what we miss a lot. That we can glorify God in ordinary things like working hard at the work. Christianity is so practical then, isn't it? When it goes from just being all about a pastor and a preacher and, and, and the message, but it goes to actually living it out everywhere we go, that's a practical Christianity. The Gospel should affect everything. Now what if you have an unreasonable boss? He's, a, he's mean, he's ungodly, for a lack of a better term, he's a jerk. Don't I have the right to disobey that guy? Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Even unreasonable. Why? Because you want these unconverted, unreasonable jerks of a boss to see the glory of the Gospel on display in your life. That's why. The glory of Jesus is at stake. You want to bring glory and honor to God. And you do all of this, according to verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now that's a motivation for obedience, isn't it? Your earthly boss may cheat you, may not pay you fairly. All of us have been there, right? We feel like, oh, $12 an hour, I should be at 20 an hour. Right? That we've been there, but your earthly boss may cheat you, but your heavenly master will never do that. In fact, He's going to give you an inheritance far beyond what you deserve. Far beyond what you're worthy of. He's going to give you the reward of the inheritance. What is that? What is the inheritance? We've talked about it before, back in Colossians 1. It is eternal glory. It's the fullness of our salvation. A new body and a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. That's what God has promised to you who love Him. So we labor for the Master who gives us this inheritance. Now, is Paul saying do this because if you do, God will give you the inheritance? That we, we earn our inheritance by our works? No. We know that's antithetical to what the rest of the Bible teaches. What he's saying is, Christ, if you're a believer, is giving you an inheritance and you know this, and that should motivate you to obey Him now by honoring your earthly master. That should affect your behavior now. And... If that doesn't motivate you at all to do that which is pleasing to God, then maybe you aren't a believer and maybe there is no inheritance to after. If you have no desire to glorify Jesus, 
I get it. We all do things that we shouldn't do. We all dishonor our bosses from time to time. But if your heart sitting in this sermon and says, I have no desire to work hard for the glory of Jesus, you're not a believer. There's no inheritance for you. You need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus. So it'll change your heart. So obey our masters. But then verse 25, look what he goes on to say. He provides another reason to obey our earthly masters. The other ones have been positive. Here's a negative reason. Here's a negative reason. Verse 25. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. What does that mean? You do wrong, there are consequences. A slave in the first century disobeyed his master, he was liable to be beaten. Uh, An employee in the 21st century who dishonors his employer, he's liable to be fired. And there's even consequences from heaven. The Lord may chasten you for failing to honor Him in the workplace. And if you're not a believer and you're ongoing in your disobedience, we know the final consequence of that sin is hell. The wrath of God and the lake of fire. So we need to obey our earthly masters because it pleases God, because He's giving us an inheritance, and because we want to avoid the consequences that rightly come upon us when we disobey our masters. And this is without partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good of a job you have. It doesn't matter if you're second in charge at your job. You need to honor those who have authority over you. Because there is consequences without partiality. And that applies not only to slaves, but even to masters. Not only to employees, but even to employers. It's without partiality. A master who does wrong will likewise receive the consequences of the wrong that he's done. And that brings us, finally, to Paul's exhortation to masters. We see that in chapter 4, verse 1. This is the worst chapter division I've ever seen in the Bible. So horrible. By the way, God did not drop the book out of heaven with these chapter divisions. He would have done much better than that. This should be verse 26 of chapter 3. Unfortunately, it's verse 1 of chapter 4, so that's the way we have to deal with it. But the good news is, that means we're finally having a sermon on chapter 4. To which some of you say, yes, we're almost done with Colossians. One chapter to go, just a few more weeks. But in any case, let's look at verse 1. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Masters are to treat their slaves with justice and fairness. That is a radical transformation of slavery. Master, treat your slave like a brother, like a fellow image bearer of God, with respect and fairness and equity. And if not, there's judgment. There's consequences. You know, we live in a culture that's always hollering for social justice. We hear that word a lot, that phrase a lot. You need to realize in the Bible there's no adjective with justice. It's just justice. Justice for all. Justice equally because all are in the image of God and deserve to be treated with equity and fairness and justice. People aren't to be treated wrongly because of their skin color or their gender or whatever the case may be. Remember back in verse 11 of Colossians 3, he says there's no distinction in Christ between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. We all are one in Christ. We're all one in the sense that we're made by God in His image, one in a spiritual sense through union with Christ, and therefore I love one another and treat one another with equity regardless of our social statuses in this life. James 5, we read a warning to masters who would treat their workers unfairly. 
James writes, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In other words, God knows when you're wronging your slaves or employees or those under authority, under your authority, and He will avenge them. There will be judgment. He goes on and says, you're fattening your heart for a day of slaughter. God will right every wrong. That's what, that's what we take heart in. Our boss may treat us unfairly now. Those in authority over us may treat us unfairly today, but they'll stand before God. They'll give an account. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll repay. We take heart in the fact that God will right every wrong. All will be made right when He appears. Right? We just sang that. We believe that. And it should affect our lives. So God promises to punish unjust masters. That was an encouragement to slaves in the first century, and it's an encouragement to employees in the 21st century. To workers, all of us today who are under some sort of authority can know that God will punish those above us who fail to do that, which is right. So if you maybe you have a lead position where you work. Maybe you have those in a, under your authority. You need to treat them right. You need to treat them with fairness and justice because God will avenge your wrong. Treat them as image bearers of God because you too have a master in heaven. You know, no, no study of a theology of slavery would be complete without acknowledging that there is coming a day when slavery in the form that we have it today will be completely abolished. Any form of slavery that we've experienced in our, our world will be completely abolished. The new heavens and the new earth, when Christ comes and destroys all injustices, there will be no more slavery like that. There will only be one form of slavery left when He comes. And that is the slavery we are in with Him. He's our Master. We're His slaves. But the good news is, this Master laid down His life for His slaves to make them His friends. And we will reign with Him and serve Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't He a glorious Master? Are you thankful for this Lord who's a model for us in authority, loving, serving, laying down His life to bring us into His kingdom. So that's God's design for the home. This is it. These six exhortations sum it up. Better than any self-help parenting family book you can buy from the store. This is it. This is from heaven. And you know, what many people think we need today is that we need more radical Christianity. We need more radical Christians. Many people are consumed with missions and going on the mission field and dying for Jesus. And those are good things. We need that. We need that. But what we really need are faithful believers who are going to do the will of God in the ordinary. In the ordinary. We need wives who submit to their husbands. We need husbands who love their wives. Children who obey their parents. Parents who bring their children up in the ways of the Lord. Slaves and employees that obey their masters. And employers who treat their employees with fairness and justice. That is radical Christianity. That is countercultural. And that can only be accomplished by those who have been born again of the Spirit of God, who are letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within them, and who are living their lives under the powerful influence and control of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, as we live out these simple exhortations in the power of the Holy Spirit, God will transform our homes, transform our homes for His glory. So let's commit today to living these things out to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth that we've heard this morning. We're thankful that 
We have a master in heaven whose eye goes to and from about the earth, seeing both the evil and the good. A God who will punish all evil, who will correct and right every wrong, who will administer justice and righteousness. And a God who is graciously giving us a glorious manual from heaven that instructs us as to how we are to function and live within the home. I pray You would help us to do that. Help us to be good fathers and husbands and wives and and mothers and children and, and employees and employers. And I pray that we would be good workers in the workplace. I pray that we would work hard at everything we do, regardless of where it is that we work, regardless of where our responsibilities are fulfilled at, at home or church, workplace, wherever it may be, that You would give us grace to work hard at what we do for Your glory, that we would be people who constantly commend the Gospel to those around us as the salt and light of the earth, because of the way we live our lives, honors the Gospel we preach with our mouths. Lord, may it be. Be with us now. Accept our worship for Your glory. Amen.